Well, good morning. One hundred and fifty seven years ago, on June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger of the United States Army arrived in Galveston, Texas, and issued General Order Number Three, announcing liberty to the captives, uh, informing the people of Texas about the emancipation that had been accomplished through the Civil War and freeing the last enslaved peoples of Texas. The Confederate Army of the Trans-Mississippi uh, region had only surrendered a few days ago. The U.S. Army had arrived to begin its military occupation of the state, and General Granger's first order of business was to announce and enforce freedom for former slaves. It was the last corner of the Confederacy to receive emancipation. Today we celebrate the occasion as Juneteenth, uh, which has been celebrated continuously since the end of the war, but is now our newest officially proclaimed national holiday, commemorating the end of slavery and a national new birth in freedom. Now today, we all know that race-based chattel slavery was a grievous sin and that abolition was a good and just thing. But perhaps you may also know that there were professing Christians on both sides of the Civil War and indeed, professing Christians on both sides of the theological argument about slavery. Sadly, our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was founded in 1845 to defend the supposed right of Christian missionaries to own slaves. Today, as some Christians reflect on the history of our political engagement, they may conclude that it's simply better to stay out of politics altogether. We recognize that we have gotten some things so wrong in ways that have brought disrepute to the gospel that maybe we should stand back and just preach the gospel. Perhaps our main priority, after all, is just preaching the gospel without any reference to whatever implications it may have here now today in our society, in our culture, in our politics. The world is destined to end in fire anyway. There's not much point to our activism because the fruits of those efforts, even if commendable, are temporary. Even General Granger's good work was followed by a century of segregation and Jim Crow. In fact, the same could be said of all of our work. We labor in a fallen world, a world that does not seem to care very much about what we do or what we deserve. In light of that, why bother? Was General Granger just rearranging the deck chairs on the proverbial Titanic? Was he just making a slight improvement in a doomed world and an uncaring universe that will, in the grand scheme, quickly forget his act? How does God view our work? Does he care about what we do with our lives? What we do nine to five, Monday through Friday, is there any point to our labor? Does he care about how we go about our parenting, our, our employment, our activism? Does he want us to try to make the world a better place? It turns out that God cares very much about our work, our creative labor, about what we do, why we do it, and for what end. And in fact, we find this starting on the very first pages of the Bible giving us work 
was one of the first things that God did. And so let's, let's turn to the opening pages of the Bible and reflect on God's commission for our work. We're going to focus on Genesis 2:15, but I'm going to begin early with the creation story. And you'll find that in your pew Bibles on page 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God created everything, and he called it good. He, he looked at everything he made. He said it was good, and at the end he said it's very good. He made humanity in 1, 26 and 27. He said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. Then in chapter 2, God, we kind of zero in on the creation of humanity. And God, we see, makes Adam from the dust of the ground and gives him the breath of life. Something not said of any other creature or living thing. Then God creates the Garden of Eden. He puts humanity in there, verses 8 and 9. We read, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then finally, we see that God gives us a task. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, to work it and keep it. So right here, I want to give you my first point. For those of you who take notes, want an outline, here's point number one, which is about the gospel. The gospel. I want to note right here how the gospel begins with these truths we've just read in the first pages of the Bible. Gospel just means good news. That's all it means. It means good news. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to skip forward to the central good news, the most important good news of the Bible, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life in him. We'll get to that. But I want you to see how the good news of the Bible starts right here on page one. And understanding how the good news starts here helps us understand the full dimensions of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what his life, death, and resurrection mean for us. The good news starts with the news that there is a God who made everything. The universe exists because of a conscious, deliberate choice by a personal, omnipotent, loving God. The universe has meaning. Creation is good. Life has meaning. Our existence is not random, accident, accidental, or pointless. We are not just bags of meat and water with higher-than-average brain electricity. We are far more than that. There is a creative, powerful, sovereign being who made a deliberate choice to make you. You matter. And this is part of the good news of the Bible. The good news gets even better. We are like God. This is an astonishing claim and something that would sound arrogant if it were not true. In the ancient world, rich, powerful men of the ruling tribe were sometimes said to be like the gods. But the idea that every human, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, were all like God himself 
That would have been scandalous. And indeed, the idea that we are all equal in the sight of God is what eventually, too long, led some Christians to argue that we all should treat each other equally in this world. Some theologians have argued that the phrase made in the image of God should be translated made as the image of God. We are to be God's image, to represent him to each other and to the rest of creation. Recall in Genesis 1, God commanded humans to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and have dominion. We are God's agents, his representatives, his vice regents. We are to exercise dominion and stewardship over all creation on God's behalf. We are God's lieutenants, so to speak. This is a high and privileged calling. And this is also part of the good news of the Bible. And the good news keeps coming. God made a place specially designed for our flourishing. Think about the imagery here. God makes everything and then takes a moment to specially plant the garden. A garden is different than a wilderness. Uh, a wilderness has no plan to it, no order. It's hard to survive in the wilderness. You don't know if you're going to find food. There might be predators. A garden, by contrast, is wilderness tamed, given order, brought under control. It's nature that is harnessed, channeled, and ordered to the needs and desires of the gardener. A wilderness might be grand, but it might also be dangerous. A garden brings forth nourishment and beauty. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. In Genesis 2, before uh, sin entered the world, God did not just plop us down into an untamed wilderness to fend for ourselves like some kind of cosmic game of Fortnite, for those of you who play video games. Rather, he carved out a special place of beauty and nourishment, perhaps like a cosmic game of Minecraft on creative mode. That's how much God cares about you. And this is also part of the gospel. Well, what happens next? And here's point number two. Point number two, the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. In planting a garden, God was also teaching us what our job was. He was the original gardener planting Eden, but then he handed it over to us to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Theologians have called this, Genesis 2.15, the cultural mandate. You may be wondering what gardening has to do with culture. Well, just think of agriculture. It might be easier to think of this as the cultivation mandate. God has given us a commission to cultivate. We are to cultivate, perhaps the land, literally, and call it gardening or farming, but we are to cultivate all universe, our minds, our communities, our human world, and we call that our culture. And so this is not just about gardening or farming. This is a commission for all of our creative labor in all areas of our lives. In a sense, Genesis 2.15 is a description of what God originally intended our lives to be about before the fall. It's God's commission to you, his authorization to you, his charge to us for what we are to do with our lives and how we are to relate to the rest of the world. 
This is a charge for your work. Your work raising children, your work carrying out your paid employment, your work mentoring and discipling others, your work serving our neighborhood, our church, our community, our country, our world. So what does this commission mean? What do we glean from it to understand how to go about our working lives? Like there's two parts to this commission, right? In various Bible translations, we see tend and keep or uh, work and keep are translated lots of different ways. Uh, cultivate and keep, dress and keep, work it and take care of it, tend and guard and keep, work and take care of, tend and guard and keep, work and watch over, cultivate and guard, till and keep. I think you get the point here. That there's two parts of the commission. One is to make it productive, and the other is to protect and watch over it. To make it productive and to protect and watch over it. To make something productive is to cultivate it, to take something, prepare it for use, invest time and labor into making it yield its fruit in a way that generates growth, development, and value. It is to sow, to sow your labor, your time, your creativity, your love, and to reap flourishing and beauty, nourishment and fullness. The other part of the commission, to protect and watch over, it means to be vigilant, to be attentive to, to stand guard against dangers from within and without, to walk the perimeter, to maintain the boundaries, to maintain a safe space within which growth and fruitfulness can happen unhindered. God has entrusted a particular plot of his garden to you, perhaps a literal plot of land, or perhaps children to raise, tasks to accomplish in the workplace, a role to serve in at church. Whatever it is, be fruitful with it and keep guard over it. Okay, how best do we do this? And here's my third point. I think we can gain some practical wisdom from this metaphor of gardening. Order and liberty. Order and liberty. God has given us a commission to cultivate and protect our particular plot of the garden of his creation, a charge that applies to all fields of our endeavor. And through the image of gardening, he has given us some wisdom about how this works best. So my wife and I actually kept a, a literal garden for uh, the better part of a decade. It's a lot of work. I built raised garden beds from planks of wood. We bought uh, soil and manure. Uh, we positioned the garden to get it just right, uh, the mix of sun and shade. Together with our kids, we tilled the soil, turning it over to ensure a rich mixture of nutrients, created lines in the dirt for orderly planting. We tied off string to create a grid we put seeds in the soil at even intervals. We erected a trellis so the plants could have a structure to grow on. We put up a fence to keep the pests out. We weeded the garden to protect the plants. We watered it on a regular schedule. Tending and keeping required us to take all this raw stuff of nature and impose order on it, to impose order on the raw stuff of nature. Then we stepped back and let the plants grow. At the end of the day, we could never make the plants grow. They grow, they grow by the des design given them by their creator. 
as reflected in their DNA, in the death and rebirth of seeds, in the life that only God can give. In all our gardening, we never actually created life. And we didn't fashion anything new. We simply provided an orderly structure and gave it the liberty it needed to flourish. We waited for life to take its course. Tending and keeping, yes, it requires imposing some order, but then it means standing back. It does not mean to control or micromanage or hover or be overbearing. And so gardening requires order and basic needs like soil, sunlight, and water, the bed, the lines, the trellis. But gardening requires liberty, stepping back, letting life take its course, recognizing that things have their own nature, understanding the nature of each plant, providing the resources, the preconditions for its flourishing, but nothing more. I think we could say that gardening teaches that life flourishes when given both order and liberty. Life flourishes when given both order and liberty. When God gave us a commission to be like him as laborers and stewards and caretakers of his creation, he made us gardeners, tenders of a system of ordered liberty in which life flourishes. That's very abstract. What does this look like in practice? Here's point number four, a couple of practical examples. Four examples, so this is four sub-bullet points under point four. First, parents. As you tend and keep your family, give your children order. Children need basic goods like food, shelter, and safety, and uh, they also need rules. Sorry, kids. They need structure. They need clear expectations. They need accountability. They need consequences for their actions. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, give your children liberty. Let them teem with life. Give them space to explore. Let them discover the world. Try new ways of being. Make new friends. Try different activities. Let them be different than you. Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Other translations say, do not exasperate your children. Do not embitter your children. Raise your children with all order and no liberty. You may raise high-achieving, resentful conformists. Raise them with all liberty and no order, and you may raise creative, slothful hippies. Especially today, on Father's Day, let us be grateful for the fathers who are working to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Second example, if you work outside the home in paid full-time uh, employment, perhaps you manage other employees, as you tend and keep the garden of your employment and your staff, give them order. Your staff, your employees need basic goods like proper training and the right equipment, and they need rules, structure, safety, accountability, clear expectations, consequences for their actions. Then give your employees liberty. Let them innovate, brainstorm, think outside the box, try new things, 
uh, push your company or your organization outside its comfort zone, challenge the bureaucracy, manage employees with order and no liberty, and you treat them like cogs in a machine, not like human beings. Not only will you crush their spirit, you're not treating them the way God would treat you. Colossians 4.1, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Manage employees with all liberty and no order, and you are derelict in your duty, robbing your company uh, of the productivity that you owe it in exchange for your paycheck. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for man. Third example. Third example. We enjoy the blessing of living under civil government, which is an ordinance from God for our good. Romans 13.4, the ruler does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Government, intending and keeping the garden of our social and political lives, should provide order and basic social goods. Government should pass and enforce uh, laws to keep the peace, protect and defend our nation, uphold justice, protect and promote the common good and the general welfare, and we should obey those laws. Beyond that, Government should allow liberty. Government should allow and promote our teeming, our restless creative roaming, our innovation and experimentation. It should allow us to try new things, to be different from each other and different from the government itself. It should allow us to disagree peacefully, to live different ways. And yes, the government should allow us to say, believe, worship, and think whatever we want even sinful and false things because God has not given government a commission to enforce the right worship of himself or to proclaim truth from falsehood. That's the commission he gave the church, not the state. And so the government should give us liberty in that zone, in that realm. While we're on the subject of government, allow me a digression, a little rabbit trail here. Slavery was an egregious violation of the commission God gave to government a dereliction of its duty to protect human life and provide basic goods to people under its care. We think that's obvious today. We recognize that many people in the past appealed to the Bible to say the opposite for many centuries because they disagreed over the nature of civil government. Uh, some Christians who defended slavery did so because they claimed it was not the role of the church or of Christians to try to make the world a better place. The gospel, they said, had no implications for our social and political lives here and now. And there was no point to trying to change a deeply embedded practice like slavery, even if they recognized it was bad. I read a sermon by a famous Presbyterian theologian in 1850 who said exactly this. He said, we recognize slavery is bad, but we also think it's ineradicable. We can never do anything about it. And the Bible doesn't tell us that we're supposed to make the world a better place. That was the excuse he used to say that Christians should continue on cooperating with slavery. Today, Christians still disagree on what exactly government should do, what it owes its people, and what the boundaries of its commission are. Let me suggest a general principle drawn from these ideas of gardening and ordered liberty and tending and keeping. I would suggest that any social, cultural, or political condition that is oppressive 
or that functionally denies the equal human dignity of every person is a form of injustice. Let me say that again. Any social, cultural, or political condition that is oppressive or that functionally denies the equal human dignity of every person is a form of injustice. And government has a God-given ordinance to seek justice. Obviously, slavery and tyranny fall in that category, but what about other things, like the radical, uh, radically unequal distribution of basic goods? Uh, what about inherited inequalities that are still the after effects, the distant ripples of past oppressions like slavery and segregation? These are very difficult issues. I raise them as questions. When we think about specific public policies, that's a matter of prudence and wisdom. We will disagree about those things, but I don't think Christians can ignore the questions. Fourth example. Here at church, we have order. We have a liturgy. We have a regular order of service. We have a pattern to how we carry out our public worship. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, about public worship, he says, all things should be done decently and in order. We have a statement of faith. We have a covenant. We have business meetings. In our spiritual lives, we need rules. We need structure. We need safety. We need clear expectations, accountability, consequences for our actions. We practice things that are called spiritual disciplines, the habits and practices that shape us as disciples of Jesus. Things like prayer, fasting, Bible study, mentorship, accountability. We have elders who shepherd us through the teaching of God's word, our ultimate standard. If that's not enough order for you, you should probably be a Presbyterian. Uh, if we have our church life with all order and no liberty, our church life would be like our church parking lot before it got repaved. All weeds everywhere, just growing out chaos. We need the blessing of order of new pavement and clear parking lines. Thank you, Larry. But we also enjoy liberty in several senses. We Christians enjoy freedom from sin and death through Christ's sacrifice. Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, James talks about our being under the law of liberty through Christ. And we also have freedom from the religious traditions of man. Think of Jesus' teaching about the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Think about the prophet Isaiah when he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Right? We understand that our relationship with God is not established by the rules, by our order, by our traditions, by our spiritual disciplines. We need those things, but they're not the point. We, uh, that would be the sin of legalism, of being a new Pharisee. We are in a loving covenant with our Heavenly Father who delights in us. And we often find that we are most freed to be the person that God made us to be when we are closest to him and his will for our lives. My fifth point, work is fallen. Work is fallen. Our labor does not always bring forth flourishing. After God put Adam and Eve in the garden and told them to work and keep it, they sinned. As a consequence for their sin, God cursed the ground. 
We read in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our work bears the consequences of our sin. All creation was affected by the fall. In the normal course of things, in an unfallen world, we could expect to sow what we reaped, to gain a reward commensurate with our effort. Our work, our parenting, our engagement with the world, our discipleship would prosper in equal measure to our investment in them, in an unfallen world. But we live in a fallen world of thorns and thistles that frustrate our labor. King Solomon saw this, uh, I think he was pained by it. Ecclesiastes 9.11, he said, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Sometimes we give our best and there is no fruitfulness. Sometimes we look around and we see fruitfulness apparently falling into the laps of wicked and slothful people. Parents, perhaps you have felt this about your children. You love and instruct them the best you can, and then they go off and do what children do because folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Workers, perhaps you felt your contributions at work have gone unnoticed, unappreciated, unrewarded, wasted. Perhaps you look at our government or the state of the world generally, and it looks to you as if evil has triumphed and only the wicked rule. Sometimes the bad guys win. All creation was subjected to futility, placed in bondage to corruption because of our sin, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. This is a sad truth that can lead to different temptations. On the one hand, perhaps you see the thorns and thistles, and it tempts you to despair, to idleness, to sloth. What's the point of anything? If the race is not to the swift, why try? If all is vanity, as Solomon puts it, there's no reason to try anymore. Lay down your gardening tools, stop cultivating, abandon hope, all ye who garden here. On the other hand, perhaps you may be tempted on the opposite end of the spectrum, tempted towards an idolatry of work because we maybe try to make our work redeem the world. We feel the brokenness of the world so badly, and it makes us righteously angry, as it should, that we imagine ourselves to be the ones to fix it. Our work takes on a righteous cast. We labor with zeal. We grow impatient with obstacles. We use other people to advance our goals. 
we center our lives around achievement and advancement. We become idolaters of work and ultimately ourselves. These two temptations, I think, feed off of each other. The more we idolize our work, the more quickly we will become embittered and burned out and disillusioned when our work uh, fails to achieve the salvation of the world. And we will give up in despair. Um, this would be a pretty depressing sermon if that was it. Uh, we are made to tend and keep God's garden. We face thorns and thistles. Everything is meaningless. Good luck. Um, so, of course, we come to my sixth and final point. Work is redeemed. Work is redeemed. Here we arrive at the center of the good news. The most important part of the gospel, the good news the Bible has to share. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, reigns at the right hand of the Father. Uh, if we turn from our sin and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, God will forgive our sins, grant us eternal life in Christ, and Jesus is coming again to establish his kingdom once and for all. And God promises to make all things new. This changes everything. Creation will be freed from its futility and corruption. In Revelation 21, we read, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God is going to uproot the thorns and the thistles. This is the final step in the unfolding of the gospel. Does that mean we should sit around idly, waiting until Jesus comes? No, of course not. Think about the parable of the talents, right? The master gives money to his servants before his departure on a long journey and expects them on return to have put his money to work. Jesus expects us, his people, to be busy about his work until he comes again. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have good work to do. God made us for the purpose of doing good. He prepared us beforehand, prepared beforehand the work he has set before us. Now, sometimes we read passages like Ephesians 2, and our first thought, like good Protestants, is to remind ourselves that good works don't save. And that's true. And it bears repeating, good works don't save. But I think we should also, I think we also sometimes overly spiritualize what good works are referenced here. As if the only good works that matter is evangelism, Bible study, and personal holiness. I don't think that's what the Bible says. Uh, those are important good works. We should strive with all our might to achieve them, but there are more kinds of good works for us to do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to tend and keep the garden which God prepared beforehand. All of our creative labor in this life, if we work as for the Lord, is a glory to God. Because of Jesus' resurrection, our work has meaning again. It is a way to honor the king whose kingdom we serve, to honor the creator whose garden we tend. When we parent our children with love, when we strive for excellence in our jobs, when we work for peace and justice in our world and our nation, we honor the God whose garden we tend. 
And one caution, past generations of Christians have taken this idea too far and have claimed that we are actually literally building the kingdom of God right here now in this life. That's false. We uh, cannot build the kingdom of God. It's a very dangerous idea that leads in some bad directions. Only Jesus will build the kingdom of God. We are building a foretaste of the kingdom. Every time we labor to create something, to parent a child with love, to work for justice or peace in this world, we are proclaiming this world that I'm trying to bring into existence through my work, this is the kind of world that's supposed to exist. This is the kind of world that God intended when he made the world before we screwed it up, before the thorns and thistles. This is a sort of world that reflects the character of the God I serve, the creator who made all things, the king who came once and is coming again. That is why, although Solomon wrote about how everything is vanity and a chasing after the wind, he concluded, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. He said, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Theologians have a fancy word for this. They call it inaugurated eschatology. As always, C.S. Lewis wrote it more simply in my favorite book, The Great Divorce. He puts it this way. Both good and evil, when they are full-grown, become retrospective. Not only this valley, but all of their earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight in that town, but all their life on earth, too, will have been seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can ever make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. We are to strive to live out the life of renewed creation, but to do it here and now. When we trust in Jesus and God regenerates our hearts, we receive the life of the world to come. We begin to live out that life now, even now, even amidst the thorns and thistles. That vision, the vision of the life of the world to come, is the vision that should animate all of our creative labors in this world. That is the work of tending and keeping God's garden in a world of thorns and thistles, of corruption and futility. We tend and keep day by day, keeping faith with our God as we await Jesus' return when he will at last make all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being your representatives on earth to each other and to all of creation. We thank you for the privilege of, of having work to do. We labor, Lord, amidst thorns and thistles. We pray that you would give us uh, courage, persistence, hope to do your work, to do it with a good will. We pray that you would protect us from despair, protect us from idolatry. And we pray that we would be animated by the vision of your renewed creation. Come, Lord, soon, come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.